In this episode, I speak with Joshua K. Smith. Josh uses his experience in the military, ministry, and academia to help bring some much-needed critical thought to the topic of AI-driven robots. In this episode, we speak about what it means to be a person and how we might consider robots as persons among us. It's a fascinating topic, and if you're interested in learning more, then please do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of Josh's book, Robotic Persons, Our Future with Social Robots, available wherever you like to read. Link in the show notes. You are listening to In Your Element, where we uncover stories, thoughts, and ideas dedicated to helping you find your own element. Let's dive right in. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the show. I am sat here virtually speaking with Joshua Smith and I would try to give an introduction, but I think it would be much more interesting if Josh, you go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do. Yeah. Hey, my name's Josh. I'm a pastor full-time in a small town in Mississippi and I... I'm an independent researcher. I like to think about robots, AI, all that stuff, and how it impacts our uh, communities. And I wrote a book about that. And it's actually from my dissertation when I was doing PhD work at a seminary in Kansas City. So yeah, I just, I've been interested in theology, philosophy, pretty much since high school and uh, dealt with robotics in high school. Thought that's where my life was going to go. And and it went a very different route. And so I am now as far away career-wise as I thought I would possibly be in, in researching AI and robotics and philosophy of mind and all kinds of weird stuff that most normal people don't spend their time thinking about. But I think it has an impact on us as consumers of technology. And so that's, that's my concern in my heart. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. When you were mentioning that, something that came to mind was you say these are the things that people don't normally talk about, but I I have a word for these kinds of conversations. I call them uh, DMCs or deep meaningful chats. And this sounds like the type of thing that that I would start getting into conversation with a couple friends after a long a long day at night. We're having some tea or something together, and we just kind of drift into like these really deep questions. And I I love that. So, so Josh, I just kind of wanted to ask. You know, this is a really interesting field of research, and you mentioned that you had done some work with robotics in the past. I'd love to get your thoughts on. What really brought you to this field? What inspired you to start researching this and what made you interested in it? Yeah. High school, I programmed some robots for a uh, manufacturing plant, Nissan, just as a volunteer and uh, actually got some training on those programs. And I thought that's my, where I, I end up in life, you know, programming, they make pretty good money. There's a huge factory here. There's several. That's mostly where a lot of people work around here is factories. So I really thought that was going to be a place for me, but I actually joined the military when I got out of school. And so the military targeted myself and many other people who are in lower demographics, uh, financially speaking. And, and when I got through and was able to kind of actually go to school and nobody was offering programs in robotics. And so it was kind of a new thing. There were a couple of people, like there was the, the university that partnered with the Nissan factory, but that's uh, not 
really where I wanted to go just for that reason. I wanted to do more stuff than that. But uh, so anyway, I got some opportunities in the military to work with a couple of systems that were human in the loop, AI based in a way, and they use different systems, but uh, basically got some experience with that. So that's really the only two connections with robotics in my prior to all this research. But then I got out and uh, was researching philosophy of mind and, you know, how we are formed and think and um, how the brain works just always really fascinated me. And then I came across a show called Westworld. I don't know if you've seen it, but yeah, but other shows too, like growing up, I remember watching Terminator and just being completely terrified by that. And I think, you know, just my generation, my age, I'm 32, we were kind of growing up in the the sweet spot of technology's emergence, right? And our parents and grandparents were just afraid of technology while and myself and others were just really captivated by it. And so I wanted to program, I wanted to build computers, I wanted to, you know, kind of get in the weeds of all that. And and I did for a little while, never professionally or anything, but uh, so I've always been kind of a lay person interested in it. But then when I, when I saw Westworld and they started dealing with the philosophy of mind and cognitive science and neuroscience, it really, for me, it, it piqued my interest as a theologian philosopher. And I wanted to see, you know, is that possible? You know, if, if we really pushed it, is this a possibility? And but, uh, so it, it's, it's not just like, Hey, we're creating technology, but that there's, there's an ideology and a, uh, a force behind all this research and tech. And so the more I got into it, the more I started seeing the ethical problems and the moral problems. And so that uh, fascinated me even more. And I think that's one of the main concerns we see in sci-fi and in dealing with robots, either there's a fear of the technology. And so why do we fear that? That's, that was fascinating to me. Why are we so afraid of creating something? And why do we want to create something that looks like us? And why do we want to make something in our image? And there's something about that in us that's revealing. And so all that began to swirl around and I was already committed to a dissertation topic. So this was not even close to what I was going to write about. And I'd already done research for a couple of years and it's just, it's wonderful. It's great. And so really I kind of wrote this at a weird time where it, it was like on this brink of explosion where all this stuff is going to come out and it just wasn't quite there when, when I wrote it. So I'm like, I wish I would have had this source or I wish I would have had this book. And, and uh, so, yeah, that's, that's some of why I got into it and, and why I'm still fascinated by it and still learning about this topic. Thank you for sharing. That's really interesting, Josh. Uh, and there's a couple of things that I would love to really unpack there. I, I think it's really interesting that you've had a military background and you've also spent some time actually tinkering around with AI and robotics. In a lot of a lot of ways, people who advance the field from a technical perspective, they do it in silo. Same with those who are thinking about some of the ethical and philosophical issues. They do that in a kind of silo and they're not actually looking at the, you know, the research and then vice versa as well. So I think that's quite interesting. Something I wanted to ask you about your military background was, did you see something or did that spark some kind of thought in your head thinking, you know, hmm, I see, you know, there are some there are some issues that we've got to think about. There's a potential danger here. Did that spark one of those thoughts or not? Yeah. Uh, so initially, like these systems are our friends. They're 
like in a, in a very loose sense of the word, right? We don't like go out after work or anything, but you know, we were, we were maintainers of the system that I worked with and it protected us. Right. And so this particular system that I worked with, it looked like a big R2D2. And what its job was to counteract mortars and rockets. And so where I was, there's a lot of rockets. And so, I mean, almost daily, the, I mean, I can still remember the sounds of like when the, the phalanx goes off, it's, it sounds like the air is being ripped apart because it's a 20 millimeter round, right? It's massive. And what it would do is it would use a FLIR system and it would automatically identify targets, right? But there's a human controller. And so we use other systems like that in, in another part of my background to uh, do anti-aircraft defense. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of tech, there's a lot of human trust in these systems, which is always interesting, right? When you think about it, you get on an airplane, you're trusting not only the pilot, but you're trusting the systems and the instruments. And so all of that stuff, so all these questions, I didn't really have time for in the military. That you just don't have time for that. You're exhausted. You work 12 hour shifts. The weapon is just um, a tool. And I think for a long time, that's how I viewed it. And so working with these systems, there's no time to think about that stuff in the moment. Uh, and so it was, it was way later. And so that those systems were glorified. We were happy and we loved them. And I remember when we took them down. So I went to Iraq at the end of the um, war. And so 2010, 2011, and our job was actually to remove all these systems and to train the state department to take over. And so when the state department got there, they were like, we're not doing this because a lot of the, the locals were tired of us being there. They wanted us to leave. Uh, and so they started ramping up the attacks. And so we had less systems to counterattack and more attacks. And so, you know, you very, you're very attached to the system because it's, it's the only comfort and safety that you might have when somebody's trying to, to hurt you. So that's, that's our emotional attachment to it is that it's, it's helping me. It's, uh, it's providing for me. And it's not that we think it's a brother in arms or, you know, I mean, some people might, but even like bomb disposal, people that use the robots and stuff, it's, it's a part of the team in a way it's, it's not human. We're not saying that, but it, it is a part of the team. So, but like using it to kill and stuff and, and sometimes mistakes happen and, and the phalanx has, you know, through accident killed one of our members and, and those things happen. That's not intentional but it happens. So uh, yeah, to answer your question, we, we don't have a lot of time to think about the, the morality and ethics of, of war fighting. And in my opinion, the military, I think intentionally tries to minimize the time that we get to think about that. And, and that's why you see so much PTSD, more injury. And now they say, nobody twisted your arm to, to do this, right? It's not just this magical being that makes decisions, right? It, it does. And there, there are things that can, but I think in many ways, that's a, it's like a, a mask for what's really happening. And, and I think for me, I, I bought into that a lot in, in my career. And, and I, I still am like almost seduced by it. Like I, I want to believe that a robot can be 
human-like. I want to, you know, I want, I want that. And, but there's a lot of ethical issues underneath that. And uh, so I'm very critical of Disney world. This is off topic, but that's kind of, that's kind of the, uh, the message of Disney world, isn't it? That you, and I think Walt Disney himself said this, if you, if you will give me your attention, your imagination, I will give you a world that you want to live in. And so even though Disney world is exhausting, expensive, there's long lines, there's all this stuff, people still desire to go to it because you get a, a fantasy world. And so to me, that's what AI is in a lot of ways. It's, it's a fantasy world for a select few and robotics will be, you know, a fantasy world for the select few. And if you think about Westworld, that's, that's what it is, right? The rich and powerful get to come live out their deepest, darkest fantasies without any legal ramifications. Although that's not true as you see the story play out. I think that's really, really fascinating. And there's a lot that I, I really want to get into. And thank you for sharing that sort of background. You know, I'd really love to dive into this topic of personhood, which you, you write about, you know, it's it's a big theme in, in your book. And I would love for you to give your understanding of what is what is personhood in in your eyes? And how do you think a robot might qualify as a person? What would be the criteria? Yeah. So this is the big question, right? You know, how can a book's called robotic persons? How can that possibly be? So I think most people, this is what I found early on is we make an assumption that human and person are synonymous. I mean, if you think about speech, when you hear someone talking about a person, like I'm a good person, you know, he's a good person or, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a filler word instead of saying human, what we mean is human. But what we say is person. But in the legal world, there's different types of personhood, right? There's legal personhood, there's moral personhood, which is mo most people mean moral personhood. There's psychological personhood, there's uh, relational personhood. And so when I'm talking about robots as persons, I'm not talking about robots as humans. And so even in my rights advocation and stuff, I'm not talking about human rights, I'm talking about legal rights. And so Basically, a legal person is a corporation, a, you know, it could be a historical landmark, it could be a statue. And the reason why they do that is so that that entity can be protected. And so the basic argument of the book is that we should consider giving certain qualified robots that may or may not be here yet, a legal personhood in order to protect the person the human person, but also the entity, because I think those two are intertwined in a way, right? So how we, how we treat objects and beings is a reflection of, you know, our morality and, and our ethics. And so that's why we teach our children that it's, it's wrong to, to beat a dog or to kick a dog, um, not because it's a human, but because it, it has some type of emotional response, feelings, whatever. And we don't really know what the inner workings of a dog are like, right? We just know that it, it responds. And, and likewise with a robot, we don't know what its inner workings are. Now I'm talking about more advanced AI driven robots, right? I'm not talking about Roombas, but because all of these words, AI, robot, person, human, they're so broad. I think a lot of people get confused. So what I mean by person in this book is legal person. 
Now, as far as like a broad definition of person, I would say a person is a character in a story. So and I, I'm looking from a biblical perspective. And so what I tried to do in the book was, okay, who are actors in God's story? Is it only humans? Because a lot of what Christians do, and this is what I kind of attack in the book is we'll go to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image. And people say, well, only humans can be made in the image of God. Okay. And then my next question is, what is the image of God? And there's multiple theories on that, right? It's a, it's a, a relationship. It's a, it's a, an ambassadorship or whatever you want to say, or it's a set of characteristics. And I think all of those things have issues with them, right? And, and I'm not saying that they're all wrong or all right, but I think it's more complex than that because we have this one, one verse in the whole book that talks about the image of God. And then you have Jesus as the image of God and, and we're not Jesus and we don't, you know, we're not ontologically like Jesus, just a big word for saying our, our being and his being are not one and the same, right? We are similar. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's about reflecting, but a person could be in the Bible. It could be an angel. It could be a donkey. It could be the wind, you know, anything that is a character, but anything that is a character that relates to God's story, right? So this story is not about us. It's not about the human race, but about God's creation. And so we consider all persons because God cares about all persons. And I know I try to prove in the book in, in different ways that, you know, God cares about how we treat animated objects and inanimate objects. And he doesn't give us like, okay, here, here's the criteria of for being a person or being human. Now we understand a lot and we're, we're trying to understand more, but I think we need to be challenged a little bit that just because the Bible says we're made in God's image doesn't give us the right to disregard other, other beings. And so I think we need to think deeper about that. And, and so robots are just the, the next evolution of our thinking about what it means to be a person. Awesome. You know, I think, you know, your view on, on what it is to be a person is, is very interesting. I love the analogy you used, you know, a character in a story. And I know that you, you make a lot of references to this idea of, you know, being made in the image of God and use the word, uh, the phrase Imago Dei in, I think that's how you pronounce it uh, in, in your book. And something that struck me reading this was, uh, I know we grant, you know, legal personhood to corporations and that, uh, you know, the idea of a limited liability corporation. Do you think that in the same way, if we do grant legal personhood to robots, that that might, you know, remove liability from, you know, manufacturers and, you know, developers who are ultimately writing some of the, effectively the moral code that would go into these, these robots? Yeah. So it's an interesting question. One, let me just disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer, right? I'm not trained in the legal field. And so a lot of people have questions for me that I think are just beyond what I'm qualified to, to give the, the fullest answer to. But guys like Jacob Turner, who is a, a lawyer, and, and I think it's Fountain Courts, Fountain Chamber Courts in London. He wrote a great book on this and I use it and you see it in the book. Uh, but he talks about, you know, it's the reason why we have legal personhood is to kind of prevent that already, right? So 
shielding is what it's called. You know, we're just going to blame it on the product. That's, that is one of the reasons why that is there. But there's a unique aspect to AI and robotics that a lot of people leave out because we assume that current, the current legal system, the current, current tort law approach is going to mind all the gaps. And we just don't know. We just don't know until we see case studies come about. And even the law in, in its nature is open to interpretation. So, you know, we could take, take any issue and, right, it comes down to the jury and the judge, right? And so it's not just ever as simple as, okay, granting a robots legal person is going to solve all the issues. That's just not how it works. And I don't know any issue that's ever going to work like that. But what the whole point of it is that we're trying to be a little bit proactive in this. Say, for example, if we would have been for the last hundred years thinking about climate change, about how much, you know, all this tech and all the mining of earth and all this stuff is going to impact our climate, will we have approached it differently? Yeah. And so likewise with this, you know, these legal issues, when, when there is liability and there are claims and there are instances of hurt and immunity, how is the court going to address it? So like on your side, right? Do you, do you want to be responsible for every product that you make? Like, do you want them to come and say, hey, Aaron, uh, you coded on this and this situation happened, so the company's not going to stand behind you and now you're responsible? Or do you want it just to be solely on the company and the product? You know, and what if it is really your mistake? And so I, I don't think it's an either or issue. I think there has to be regulation in a way that looks at both ends. I mean, just think about the vaccine. Like, what if we would have punished, you know, scientists in that way? And you're now responsible for anybody that dies. Who's going to work on those projects, right? That's, that's why we have malpractice insurance and all that stuff. And so I, I see it more as like, almost like an AI insurance. And I know there, there's some of that in there, but I think we have to think about it from the perspective, not just of an insurance company in the US, because there's a lot of issues there, but seeking a non- governmental, non-private public endeavor to make sure that there are safe products. They've been through proper testing that we kind of understand the risk. We're not just forcing people into a contract they don't understand. And then when they're hurt by this robot, which is embodied and has arms and the ability to make a decision that we're just like, well, you signed up, you know, you accepted the terms when you bought it. So tough. You know, we, we want to get away from that. And so some of this is, is very lofty, right? It's, it's a push for legal reform. It's a push for accountability within corporations and companies. But also, you know, we don't blame. So I have children, right? When they grow up and they reach an age of majority, they are now responsible for their own actions, right? And so one of the unique features of AI is that eventually is going to reach an age of majority. Not that it becomes fully human or sentient or anything like that, but that at some level, it made a decision that we don't understand based upon a process of evaluation, based upon uh, its code, based upon biases, whatever that's been inputted into it. You gave it an input, it made an output, and it was bad. And so now the court has to decide you know, the company has to decide, you know, we, we don't know why it made this decision. 
And so you get into the issue of causation. So in the legal world, you have, and this is what makes it unique and why we need to advocate for it. In the legal world, causation comes in two forms, right? You have the actual cause that happened. We, we know, you know, you were hurt. Okay. But you have to have a legal causation too. So can you prove that this is the reason why, you know, it, the outcome was based on the robot, not the coder. And so you have to prove that, right? So let's, for example, let's just say, so real life, I, I worked in a condemned building in the military, right? And there was lead-based paint. And if you remember those old commercials about mesothelioma and all that stuff, if you, you know, well, they used to come on a lot. And so I worked in one of those buildings and let's just say I get cancer later on in life. And so I, I hire a lawyer or whatever. And I could, I say, I look, I, I worked in a building, had these things. Now I have, you know, I can show you that I have cancer because of this. Well, they could argue, you know, how can you ensure that those particles from that building were the ones that you inhaled that gave you the cancer? There's no way I can prove that. Right. And so that that's the issue of legal causation. And I think that's what we're going to get into in the murkiness of AI is, okay, yeah, the robot made a mistake or harmed somebody, but I'm not sure who to blame in this. I'm not sure what the best process of liability is here. And I think that's going to hurt people. It's going to hurt coders. It's going to hurt, you know, the person who's affected by it in the families. It's going to affect policies. And so all these things we need to be aware of as consumers, which we're just not really. I mean, that's the whole legal part of the book is probably one of the most important aspects of it because it introduces people into a world of, of contracts that most of us just either don't care about or we're not informed enough about. And I think if most people were, they would be more upset that, you know, I just entered into a contract with this app that I'm using. And it may have said, you know, okay, somewhere in the fine print, you have to give us your third child, right? They wouldn't do that, right? I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's an exaggeration, but they could put anything they want in there and you click agree. And now you've in a way consented. Now there's, you know, protections against that in the legal field. But uh, anyway, that's, that's kind of what we're concerned about. Hmm. Yeah. You know what? Um, Gonna have to take care. Always read the terms and conditions. I don't think anyone actually reads them. <laughs> Um, yeah. You want to get to using the product, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Although having said that, I think a lot of companies now are making much more of a concerted effort to try and educate people as to what they are signing up to. And I think especially using some of the big tech products like Google, Facebook, like they're really trying to drill it in now. When you use our product, like you're agreeing to this, 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 and this, and we're going to remind you almost every time you do. So at least that's, that's getting better. Um, but one one thing I wanted to, to ask was, we've covered this topic of legal personhood from the perspective of protection, and something I'd love to get your thoughts on is, in the same way we can, say, sue a corporation, the corporation can also sue us, and what what is your take on you know will will I have to worry about my Roomba like suing me if I trip <laughs> over it like? <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so we need to be very careful here when we talk about rights, and we're not talking about all robots. And I think that's what makes people really upset is they want to talk about robotic rights or robot. I'm not talking about all. 
So I'm not talking about Roombas at all, right? I'm not talking about, I think I mentioned the Roomba in the book because everybody wants to go to that one. I don't know why. I guess it's the one we're most familiar with, but everybody's like, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, liberation for your Roomba, although it is a slave. That's what it is. And that, that should cause us to take a step back, right? You know, we, and why don't we make these products to, anyway, but I, I think in a sense, granting certain robots rights, and it would need to be a process of evaluation. It would need to be a process of, you know, going through the process of making a commission to regulate, to decide who's going to be on these boards and who's, who's going to serve and which capacity and which robots. And, and that's, that's why we need to have all these conversations because it takes a long time. Right. But you're also talking about something that's going to be used on an international level. So it, it can't just be one religious ideology. It can't just be one secular ideology implanted into these codes and implanted into this legal understanding, right? Because what's legal here is not, you know, could be illegal in Canada or vice versa. So it's, it's a very tricky scenario to try to figure out all these legal hurdles. But going back to your question, no, would I be sued by my robot? It's a possibility, right? And I, and I think like Pepper, the uh, the service robot in the UK, I think it comes with a disclaimer like you you cannot abuse Pepper, like do not sexually abuse her uh, or him. And so I, I think you'll get into that, and I think that's wise because I don't I don't know if you saw the show Humans, the BB BBC Channel Four show. Oh, it's wonderful! It's a, it's a wonderful alternative to Westworld that I would advocate people watch over Westworld, even though Westworld looks better uh, It's produced by HBO, but humans gets more to the heart of the issues of what we're going to be dealing with, right? It's, it's a service robot that has upgradable features. If you know what I'm saying, like you can, you know, purchase a humanoid robot that looks like a woman, but it also has, um, built-in upgrades that you can abuse, right? And so I think that's what concerns me. And, you know, if you if you abuse it, right? And, and this is an old argument from a philosopher named Immanuel Kant, is that Kant was not an animal rights activist at all. But he said that how we treat animals is a reflection of how we are moral actors or how we view our own morality. So it's, it reflects who we are. If you go home every day and after work and you beat your dog, something's not right with you, right? That's not, that's not the best reflection. And I know I'm talking about dogs a lot. I'm sorry for anybody. <laughs> that I don't do that. We love our dog. Um, but, you know, it, it has nothing to do with whether or not the dog is, you know, sentient or uh, conscious or whatever. It has everything to do with, as a human, we're supposed to be responsible. God's creation, we're supposed to be ethical, moral creatures and so we 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 don't treat the lesser beings in improper ways and so i think this added layer of protection for the entity also helps protect the human because if you give somebody if you give somebody something that looks like a supermodel and you say it has an upgradable feature. You don't have to use it, but it's there. You put that temptation in front of them. And a lot of people say, well, what's the harm in that? Well, we're also seeing a lot of harm in just the AI chatbot world where people are 
disengaging from human relationships because why why would they pursue a human relationship when they could you know get gratification from this chatbot and even the japanese government has some concerns about this because there are lots of japanese men who would prefer to have a relationship with this chatbot than an actual woman and as you know there's lots of issues in japan with that about you know there's not enough people to take care of the elderly and uh, all that stuff so not reproducing humans is an issue for them and and i think we'll get there as well and so there's all these kind of layers to the to the problem and, I, and i'm concerned on on multiple tiers that you know granting rights is a first step to addressing some of these issues it's not the sole um, solution or anything like that but it gives us some time to really think through this and as we see more case studies build out and so let's say you know hypothetically that it it has to consent to that relationship and you abuse it right if if we don't put that in there or try to then we're in in a way encouraging rape and abuse because that's what's going to happen right i mean that's just a sad reality of the human condition is people want what they can't have sometimes and then they and they take it and so well people think well what if this reduces that what if this reduces rape abuse and child molestation and, uh, granted it could okay that that is a potential i understand and that's why a lot of people advocate for it there are people who advocate that it will reduce these issues i disagree with that because one just on a philosophical level would you make a would you make something just for somebody to have prejudice against it and take it out on that being? And is that going to reduce their prejudice? No, right? It's just going to give them an outlet for it, but that's not going to treat the underlying issue. And I think the same way with childlike sex robots and all that stuff that's being argued for, I think it's actually going to foster more of a desire because it, it may satisfy the urge initially. It, it may, but as we know from research on pornography and different things like that, it, it doesn't ever satisfy ultimately. And that's not why it's made, right? That's not why it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's because it's, it's a one and done type thing. So to me, that, that logic just boggles my mind that we're, we're advocating for, you know, some people are just make it, it'll help reduce these issues. There's no problem with it, but it is essentially rape. That's what it is. No consent. And it's just, just fostering that selfish desire, selfish gratification. And so I don't know that a lot of people have thought about this, but when you think about desire, one way that you kind of counteract that, that need for gratification and uh, that impulse, one way you combat that is through self-denial and, you know, practicing that makes you better at it. Totally. And I think you you mentioned this in, in the book as well. Should we create a a robot that would let someone simulate their hatred as a racist towards it? That's probably not a great idea. I can definitely see that as well. You know, Josh, I think it's been such an interesting conversation with you. I have learned so much and I'm really looking forward to actually reading the rest of, of your book. Just before we, we wrap up, is there anything that you would like to share? How can people learn more about your work and you? Yeah, well, you can follow me on Twitter 
or you could follow my website and joshuaksmith.org. And I am working on a second book that hopefully will be more accessible to the lay reader and, and, and more positive about our future with robots. Follow us there. It's a strong, small community of scholars who are working for robotic rights and advocating for that. And I think just following that movement on Twitter and being educated and informed about what's out there. So when policies come along, you can vote as an informed consumer and just question every, every technology that comes out and, and where, where it comes from. And there's so many great books coming out about this stuff. And so, um, yeah. If anyone is interested in learning more about this topic, then definitely pick up a copy of Robotic Persons, Our Future with Social Robots. I'll leave some links in the podcast episode description. But that's all we have for you today, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the show. In Your Element is proudly brought to you by a single dude from his London apartment. This show does not have social media. I'm not going to ask that you leave a rating or a follow. Instead, I'd love to see you coming back just because you're seeking something different, are genuinely curious, and are looking for ways to really find and live in your element, just as I am. As always, keep being you, keep crushing life, and keep finding your element. I'll see you in the next one.